Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving higher. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Marks with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. He's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the world of the commodities. So, Sean, how are you doing this morning? Two thumbs up from Sean Hackett. <laughs> Can't get better than that. No, that's, that's as good as it gets. That's, if you had three, you'd have three thumbs up, right? My, my cat has two paws up. That's the only difference. There so. you go. Look at that. This keeps getting better, man. Keeps getting better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> some soft market stuff today. Um, cocoa, sugar are all making moves uh, around the marketplace, and milk is still struggling to be profitable. So I guess let's start with sugar first because we are digging sugar beets here in the panhandle of Nebraska, and uh, that is underway, and we have... From what I what I gather from the guys I've heard from, seems like sugar's pretty decent. Seems like tonnage is there. So slow but sure, we're going to make our way through the sugar market. But, Sean, as you're looking at the international sugar market, and we've talked a little bit about some of the struggles we've seen in India and those places where sugar cane is not quite as robust as it's been in the past. What do you see happening in the sugar market, and where do you see it heading as we th- go through this harvest? There's four key players for sugar. You have the largest exporter in the world, which is Brazil. They had a good crop. They have bigger supplies. Then you have 
India that had a poor monsoon season. And as of October, are going to halt all exports of sugar for the foreseeable future uh, because of tight supplies and very high domestic prices. Thailand um, experienced a drought, a severe drought, and their crop estimate's going to be off about 35% to the third largest exporter in the world. Um, you know, their exports at best will be off half from, from peak exports from a few years back. And then we have China, which is the largest importer of sugar in the world. And their sugar crop, which is in the two southern provinces of the country, just experienced uh, the greatest flooding arguably in at least 100 years and potentially in 200 years from two typhoons that went right in there and um, and created just, just massive flooding in the core sugar areas. Now, of course, China will never tell you what the truth is about crops. They always tell you everything looks great no matter what the weather is, but obviously – um, you know, the crops there is going to be very, very poor. So we would expect China's you know, imports of sugar in the upcoming cycle to be very strong. So this suggests that we have a kind of a scarcity issue coming up here on sugar. And the prices you know, have started to break out from their summer consolidation. And um, so long as India is willing to keep not selling – I think that the, uh, the you know the, the odds, the probabilities favor that this market's going to continue to trend higher at least through the end of the year. So, okay, all right, good news for the sugar folks out here in in the country. So, you talked about in the past how sugar is. I mean, they're, they're, you, the U.S. domestic sugar market is kind of more or less shut off from the rest of the world, and if yeah. they have to go to the well to get something, it's very rare and and and. Yes. Um, vice versa when it comes to exporting sugar out. What's that look like right now for the U.S.? The U.S. has had solid production this year. Uh, where they grow sugar beets, the weather was considerably better than it's been the last few years. And um, so so, so look, the sugar situation looks fairly, uh, fairly good this year, and it doesn't look like that we're going to need to bring any sugar in. You know, quite frankly, we might be able to sell a little sugar out, um, depending on exactly how the – the crop turns out in the end, but um, you know, I, I see a solid sugar supply demand equation right now for domestically here in the U.S. Awesome. Okay. All right, man. Let's talk cocoa a little bit. Cocoa is going through a correction right now, and um, cocoa is one of those things that I don't even hardly pay attention to because as long as there's chocolate bars on the shelf, I'm happy, Sean. So, looking at the cocoa market, what do you see happening there? West Africa, seventy percent, seven zero comes from West Africa, which is Ghana and the Ivory Coast. So basically, that's all you have to worry about. Everyone else doesn't really matter at all, okay? Um, they have experienced uh, the wettest year um, in Ghana in at least 50 years um, and potentially 100 years. And so what has happened, uh, for years, this market had been undervalued, you know, had been very, very low, Producers weren't making money. Nobody was replanting old trees. Nobody was husbanding the trees. No one was putting, you know, no one was taking care of these trees because there was no economic incentive to do so. And so the trees over time, uh, if you do a lack of care, uh, start to degrade in their uh, strength. And so what, when, that, when the trees get weak, any tree crop, whether it's an orange crop, whether it's a coffee crop, coffee tree, um, and you throw stress on it, 
it has the potential to, for disease to involve. It's like the human body. If right. you're stressed, if you're weak, if your immune system is not strong, you can get a cold a lot easier. You can get something a lot easier. Same thing with a tree. So very wet, persistent wet weather puts a lot of stress on trees. And as a result, they've gotten huge disease problems, uh, root disease, um, black pod disease. These are two common diseases, swollen root disease uh, that, that, that impact cocoa trees specifically. And this has really hurt their crop production. And not only the crop production, but the quality of the production. So this market has been on a run, Casey, all year long. It's just been trending up, trending up. You know, a year ago when we were, you know, recommending this or suggesting that this was an interesting market to look at to the upside when it was at 2200, 2300, you know, got up to, to 3800 here um, a few weeks back before now having this very significant correction. We actually came down to 3400 uh, yesterday, the day before. The main harvest is starting in October, just like any harvest, Casey. What does that mean? It means harvest pressure. It means regardless of how bad the crop is, some supplies are going to come in, some supplies are going to be available, some farmers are going to sell these high prices because they are exceedingly profitable now. Um, and so we've got this big correction. The problem is, as we've said on your show, we have an El Nino coming that's going to peak in the December-January time frame. There's something called the Harmattan wind season in West Africa where if the right conditions are in place, you get these very strong, very high northerly winds that blow into West Africa from late November through early March. If they're strong enough and persistent enough, they do two things. First, they they singe and and kind of burn the buds that are starting to grow when the and the blooms are starting to grow for the next crop. And secondly, they throw a whole bunch of dust in the air. And all this dust in the air, down here in Florida, we get this uh, the Saharan dust uh, uh, sometimes when yep. it gets really bad. it's a it's, You yep. see a haze, like everything's just a haze. You see that the sun is not coming through. It's being filtered through. Well, so so not, so not only is the, is the tree being singed, sandblasted uh, by the winds and the sand, but it's, it's getting a lack of sunlight, which doesn't help the photosynthesis process. Typically, El Nino's, tend to produce uh, strong harmattan wind seasons. El Nino modicais tend to produce uh, higher-order harmattan wind seasons. So while I understand why the market's correcting, um, I do think that the market has to be careful here in terms of selling off too much because I still think until we – if, if I'm correct about what I just said about harmattan, we need to price that in. And that could be very devastating for, the, for next year's crop. Once we price in the Harmattan wind season, then I think that this bull run that this market has had would probably come to an end. So I, I guess where I'm where I am at on this market is that if you're in the physical side of buying cocoa or you're you know have some reason why you want to you know be looking to buy cocoa for some reason, um, you know, I might look for some kind of a harvest low here in late October, early November prior to the mountain wind season to maybe protect some upside price risks. That would be my suggestion in the market is, um, you know, be, be looking for an oppor a buying opportunity um, later on this month. 
Or I mean, later on in October. We're not quite later on in October. So, okay. Yeah. I'll say yeah. you only have a couple of days left <laughs> in September to make that happen. So. Yeah. Later on in October, <laughs> not, not September. <laughs> right on, man. All right. Let's jump down and talk a little bit about what's happening with milk. Milk has just struggled. I mean, we'll, we'll it'll take a run up. Not too long ago, it was up in the 20s. Um, and now we're falling back down into the 18 range, and it's just been a, a tough year for milk, I guess. So you're looking at what's going on in the milk, uh, in the world of milk. Sean, what are your thoughts there, and, and where do you see that headed? Well, I think it's very important to understand there's really two distinctly uh, different milk markets. It's the class four market, which is your butter and powder, mm-hmm. and the class three market, which is your cheese and dry whey. Um, most people look at the class three market. Um, and, but when you really look at farmers, you know, they, they make money off of both markets. So we try to look at an amalgamation of both class four and class three class four has surged here in the last few weeks. Actually, if you look at deferred pricing, we're actually trading over $20, which is not too shabby for class four price, right? The butter price has gone skyward. We've had a massive spike trade upward in butter, U.S. butter prices. Actually, we're testing all-time highs, if you can believe it, in butter prices. And the real reason behind that is that California, um, the cost structure in California and out west is diametrically higher than the rest of the country because of the laws and regulations and just the way they handle themselves there with everything the law. And that's where primarily the class four milk comes from the West. And so their production has, has been falling rapidly. Their market share uh, in relative to the total milk produced in the United States is falling. So it means we, we, we are, we are not producing a lot of milk suitable for producing butter and powder. So the butter market is, if you look at cold storage stocks, we're at very, very low levels for this time of the year. And we're going into the the holiday season. Regardless of what you think the economy is going to do or not do, demand goes up (laughs) (laughs) during the holidays. No matter what happens, it goes up. And we could get ourselves like crazy low on butter supplies come uh, typically the December, January trough in cold storage supplies. So, so, and then, and so, and then, then if you looked at the, the last GDT auction, New Zealand puts on these global cash auctions that anyone in the world can trade them cash wise. And it's a good barometer for powder, for milk, all these markets. The last auction, we saw a significant rise in the overall milk price in New Zealand. But what was particularly exciting was that the milk powder Skim milk powder, uh, whole milk powder, they had a really big spike trade. And the fortunate thing about GDT is we're able to see who did the buying. They, they tell you who did the buying. And the number one buyer was China. China, that's shocking. The largest purchase in any auction since, the late, since late 2020, when they were large buyers of everything. It's been our thesis. As you know, Casey, that as we approached, the more we approach the end of the year and the more we approach this meat protein shortage post-African swine fever, that we would see all things protein start to get uh, bought or that we would see China buy more aggressively. Um, 
And milk powder is a protein source that's storable and is, is, and is customarily uh, a good protein source to stock up on if you think you're going to have a meat protein shortage. So to see China come in for the first time all year long and really buy powder big um, and, and, and at a level that we haven't seen in quite a few years says to me that they're probably back in the milk powder market for a considerable period of time. One auction doesn't make a trend, but I would be willing to bet once the Chinese show their cards like that, they're likely to be coming back for more, Casey. That's very good news for the milk market. Now, the, the one bummer, the one uh, – uh, um, the one market, uh, the cheese market, is the only market that is l- the least attractive, which is your class three price, meaning that we have that's where we have plenty in cold storage. Uh, we're producing, uh, you know, most of your Midwest milk uh, produces a lot of cheese, and, and production there's actually been much much better than out west. And so the class three market is probably going to still struggle. Uh, as we approach the end of the year a little more, but overall, you know, I do think that July 13 and a half dollar spot price class three and milk price was your low. And all we're doing now after a big run up, as you said, to that 18 to $19 area is we're just having a healthy uh, correction off of, you know, quite a move off the lows, but ultimately, you know, I believe with China back in the market, it seems um, that, that we're looking at uh, overall. I think if you look at the, Class four, class three combined price. Right now, that that average is about 18 and a half, 18 and three quarters on the deferred pricing. I think that you know we can see that average price get to $20 or higher. I mean, class four is already $20, but I think the average can reach $20. And if we start moving to $20 between the two, Casey, then producers overall will actually start making a little more money than their expenses for the first time in a while. And so that's, you know, we're almost there, not quite, but I think we'll, we'll get there as we move into the latter part of the year and into, you know, the first half of 24. And so once again, if you're, you know, Dean Foods and, you know, you, or you're DFA and you need to buy a lot of milk, um, you know, I think this is a, you know, I think this setback in class three prices at least, you know, I think I would be viewing that as an opportunity to buy a lot, of, buy some cash milk here to extend your coverage, protect upside price risks, I think. Um, you know, the move is going, you know, the, the, the supply demand equation has shifted, uh, to the bull side right now. Yeah. Okay. Cause it wasn't that long ago. Milk was just like 13 and some change. So that was yeah. really, really bad. All right. Jump over here and take a look at what's going on in the energy markets. Uh, West Texas oil is down just a little bit, uh, today starting out at 9361. Um, and, uh, you got your Brent crude at 94. 11 they're down about two dollars and 52 cents i guess sean just take a look at what's going on um with the oil marketplace it this it seems like whether it was in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s it's got it kind of bounces around that that you know the low 90s to mid 90s um same way it did in the 80s then it bounces up you know and does the things as you look at what's going on in the oil market sean what are your thoughts there you know oil is such a politically driven market to say the least yes uh i think what's happened here is we were supposed to buy start buying oil when it went under 70 dollars for our strategic petroleum reserve to rebuild it Mm -hmm. we had told the saudis and middle eastern we're going to go do that 
And then when it got under 70, we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it looked like the, you know, the oil price was going to 60 or 55. And, and um, so I think that didn't sit very well with Saudi Arabia. And I think Saudi Arabia said there's an election coming up. The last thing President Biden wants to have is wild, crazy high energy prices, which filters through everything that we use and consume. Um, and so they decided to make a deal with the Russians, who obviously want higher oil price to fund their war. Yep. Um, they decided to take 4 million barrels off the market per, uh, and um, at a time that we were not really wanting to sell our, any more of our strategic petroleum reserve. And boom, price is now 90 95 And um, so, you know, that's where we're at. And, you know, if you take enough oil off the market, of course, the market's going to go higher. Demand hasn't changed. It's it's not like demand has improved. What's very interesting, (laughs) you look at the uh, China crude oil purchases um, this year. They've been off the charts. And they've they've been building their own strategic petroleum reserve all year long. Almost that they had someone told them. This would happen. Uh, like, get the oil while it's cheap because later on in the year, this is what we're going to do. So make sure you get all the oil you can so that you don't get hurt by the, whole, the higher oil prices. We hurt the West. And so, so where I think we're at, I don't think crude oil is going to go over 100. I don't think it's actually in the best interest for the Middle East for it to go over 100. They know, and the history suggests that anytime crude oil gets over 100, very, very bad things happen to the global economy. And while they want to put the screws on us at the same time, you know, if they put the world into a global economic collapse or crisis, oil prices are going to come back down, and and that's not good for the Saudis and not good for anybody else. So I I think we're kind of reaching the upper lump, the upper band limit of this geopolitical chess match that's being played. And so I think we're probably going to be sort of topping out here and maybe having the market, you know, take some of this rally back and go back into the, you know, mid eighties or so. Look, I'm not an oil guy. I'm a ag guy and I focus on ag, but, but this is just my speculation about what I think's going on in the crude oil market. And, um, and, and we, we know, we know that this is an insider's market always has been, always will be, but I just find it very interesting that China loads up on crude oil just before it rises $20 a barrel. Uh, or $30, you know, it's just interesting to me how somehow this has been in the works for a while. Now, of course, at some point, they will produce more oil because they want to make as much money as possible. So, sure. so, so I, as I said, I, I think, I, I don't think we're going to see over 100. So I think we're near at least a short-term high area for crude oil. And I think we can come back down. Obviously, everyone's been all panicking in the stock market because it means the Fed's going to keep raising rates to hundred percent interest rates and it's never going to go down and all this stuff. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of panic out there because the crude oil market has made this big move. Um, and it's caused all kinds of problems. The dollar, it was very interesting. This is very interesting. It used to be when we were large importers of crude that every time the oil price went up a lot, the U S dollar would get hit because we were buying so much oil and so many dollars were going out. Now that we're self-sufficient in crude oil, in fact, we're, marginally a net exporter when the crude oil market goes up the dollar goes up when crude oil goes down 
this, the U.S. dollar goes down. You put a chart of the U.S. dollar and crude oil prices, it's, it's almost a perfect correlation. I find that very interesting. Uh, that, 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 is, that correlation has been turned upside down since the shale revolution has pro- allowed us to be the largest producer of crude oil in the world. We now produce more crude oil in the United States than Saudi Arabia does. I'm not sure a lot of people understand that. Um, so for, you know, for those that want a weak dollar, <laughs> you want to, you want the crude oil market. You see, Cheap usually, oil, huh? usually a commodity bull would want, want strong crude oil prices. That's always been what you want. You, you want the oil price to go up because that creates inflation. It hurts the dollar and the commodities take off, right? That's always what you wanted in the past. It's kind of like, it's not like the crude oil market going up is, is, is inherently not constructive for your increase in costs of producing stuff. But if it increases the dollar so dramatically, like it has, it's a depressant. It's almost like you don't really want the crude. What you want is you want the crude oil market to sort of stabilize at a level that's inflationary, but you don't want it to keep rising because if it keeps rising, then so will the dollar. And it, it doesn't allow the U.S. priced commodity markets to gain traction like you do when the, when the U.S. dollar is weak. So I find that a very interesting dynamic, a, a complete turnaround of the correlation from 10 years ago. And, um, you know, if I'm a commodity bull, if I want to be bullish commodities, I actually want crude oil to back off here and find itself quietly into the mid-80s. I think that actually is the most bullish scenario. The dollar would then come down some, and it would take some of the pressure off the inflation, and it would take some of the pressure off the Fed staying on the pause button and not increasing rates again. So so w- w- while uh, what I'm saying is, is sounds counterintuitive, a $10 decline in crude will probably be the best thing for a more bullish commodity environment going forward versus the last 30 to 45 days, which has been pretty negative for a lot of markets. So Okay. Makes sense. All right. Lastly, let's talk about ethanol, what you see happening there, crush rates and those kind of things. As you're looking at the, where the current price of oil is and what you've seen um, with uh, some ethanol uh, movement here over the last couple of days, um, what are your thoughts there and, and how do you see that shaping up? Margins are phenomenal. Ethanol margins are phenomenal right now. So every ethanol plant's running 100% full speed ahead, which means the demand for corn is as strong as it can get. I mean, the demand for ethanol looks looks great. Remember, if you're doing your job as an ethanol producer, then you know you, you, you lock in the margin and you lock it in as far forward as you can. You, you lock in the ethanol price, you lock in the corn price, you get it all done, and you're set. So, so uh, you know, the demand for corn, for ethanol, is going to remain very strong for the foreseeable future because if, if, they, if everyone does what they're supposed to be doing right now, we pretty much have a six-month runway of very strong corn demand for ethanol, even if oil prices or the margins were to, were to go down. Uh, the ethanol demand is going to be very, very strong. Everyone keeps talking about, you know, gasoline uh, consumption is down because of the electric car uh, revolution, and th- that is true. You know, if we look at the gasoline consumption numbers, you know, they're off um, and down, even though we're starting to drive more because electric cars are taking more of the uh, uh, of the market share. And plus, when you when you plug in an electric car, you're not using gasoline; you're using primarily natural gas power power plants to do it. Um, so, uh, but what they've been doing is they've been 
they keep increasing the percentage of ethanol that's allowed in gasoline. So if gasoline demand falls 10%, but you increase the ethanol percentage by 10%, you're still selling just as much ethanol. That's the game they've been playing, and they've been, they've been getting away with it so far. The big elephant in the room is switching away from gasoline ethanol demand to jet fuel. That's the big push. That's the big future for corn is to make uh, corn ethanol used in the making of green jet fuel. Renewable diesel is also that push for making green jet fuel. But it looks to me like if you look at how much the airline industry would need for jet fuel and how much would be satisfied with using renewable diesel from bean oil, and how much could be used for ethanol, we could have a complete uh, – if we lost the entire gasoline business, we could totally support current corn demand by making jet fuel. So while everyone is is panicking and telling it's all, the corn market's all over, it's going to zero, I don't think so. I think that the, the gasoline consumption trends will be a slow-moving train, which means plenty of time to adjust. It won't go away or right away. And I do think this jet fuel, I mean, it may, it's going to happen. We are going yep. to make green jet fuel. It's going to happen. And within five years, I think almost 100% of jet fuel in the world is going to be green, period. End of story. And ethanol is going to be part of it. And, make, and using ethanol from corn is going to be a part of it. And so the future for, for fuel from corn, I think, is going to remain strong. And I don't believe that the the the, the, the doomsdayers for corn um, are thinking about this correctly. We're just going to shift what we use ethanol for. That's it. Hmm. Makes sense, I guess. If you think about it like that, makes a lot of sense. All right, Sean, good stuff. As usual, folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you are doing over at Hacker Financial. What's the best way to do that? Uh, we have a Twitter page at Feridex, F-E-R-I-D-E-X-11. We also have our website at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We also have a LinkedIn page where we, from time to time, put out some interviews and some, some tidbits about what we do, how we do it, and why we do it to see if the way we look at the world and agriculture would be of value for your listeners. Right on, Sean. I appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Always a pleasure, Casey. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and go to the ever so cleverly named YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. It's mind blowing how creative that was. So check that out. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related. You got some good big announcements coming out here over the next couple of months, and uh, we'll see a few things here. We're going to Go ahead and lock down the uh, Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee. That'll be uh, November this year, just because of how things shaped up. November uh, dates will be here released soon, so you'll see that here directly. Sean, uh, uh, it was good talking to you. We'll talk to you again next week, man. Sounds good, Casey. Right on. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour, Sean Hackett. It's going to be smart, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. 
You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's IronComps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. 